Gonna take my horse to the old town road and gonna ride till I can't no more. Yeah! <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vickery. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, uh, I hear through the grapevine that this is your two-year anniversary on this here podcast. So congratulations. This is wonderful. It's been such an amazing adventure with you. Uh, how are you feeling two years in? Thank you. I feel like I'm accepting an award all of a sudden. You are. The way you like led that in. <laughs> there are so few people that have hosted The Bike Shed for two years. And you are now amongst those ranks. I feel very honored. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I can't believe it, really. One of the things that made this pop up on my radar is I have a journal app that then sends me notifications. It's like, hey, if you if you want to read your entry from a year ago, I don't know why it has a funny voice, but it does. And it came up for two years ago. And I had written a note to myself about being so nervous to record my first episode as co-host. And I thought, oh my gosh, memories. And I cannot believe it's been two years. It has been so much fun. Are you slightly less nervous now? Just a little bit. I mean, it comes and goes. Depends mm. on the day. Indeed. I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've had from this that I think you and I talked about in one of the very early episodes that we recorded together was the idea that we can be wrong on the internet in terms of like we can say something that we think is true, but then we learn something else along the way and then report back. And that has made this a very comfortable, fun learning space and also sharing space of all the adventures that we have been on. Yeah, it is a delicate art uh, being wrong tactfully on the internet. I think the key is not being too confident when you're being wrong, or a lot of what we do is and we, we share experience reports, like here's what happened, here's what I chose, here are the outcomes. And it's kind of hard to be wrong when you're summarizing your experience. So we can only be so wrong or so judgeably wrong. Uh, and that, that certainly helps. But yeah, like you said, it has flown by two years, really. Uh, I was surprised uh, when we saw that stat, but uh, it has also been such a pleasure, and I look forward to many more. But otherwise, what's uh, what's going on in your world? Well, speaking of sharing our adventures, it's been an adventurous week. So it's been a week filled with dramatic code readings and playing Code Detective, which when I say that is really what we do every week. But this week, there was a persnickety browser-based bug that I ran into that taught me something about the Safari browser, and that was novel. So specifically, I learned that the JavaScript date constructor has a different date format requirement on Chrome versus Safari, and I discovered this not by choice, but because of a bug report, and I can't share specifics about my current project, so instead I've made up a company, which is called Steph's Safari Tours, because we are talking about a Safari-based bug. And we were receiving a bug report that Safari passengers were allowed to book a tour even though they didn't meet the minimum age requirement because at Steph Safari Tours, we take safety very seriously. So you need to be of a certain age. And after looking into the bug for a while, we realized it was only passengers that were using the Safari browser to book their Safari tour that we were running into this. So the specific details are when you run new date, when you're using the JavaScript date constructor, and then you are passing in a string to represent your date format, the application code was passing in a list. So we have a form that users are filling out. They're providing their month, date, and year for their date of birth. We are collecting those different values and then storing it as a list and then passing that list to the date constructor. So on Chrome and Firefox, this just works. And it understands that it's a date, and then it translates that value to a date just fine. But on Safari, instead, it returns an invalid date. 
So specifically to our issue, so we were taking an invalid date, we were performing some math.floor logic to then get the person's age, and then that was being converted into not a number. And it turns out, if you compare not a number to any other integer, it's always false. So if we were checking if this person's age is less than our required age, then please show them an error. But we were never getting past that conditional because it was always false, so we were always just letting people through to book safari tours. And so then circling back to understanding more of the date issue, it is because Safari has stricter requirements around what is a valid date format, while Chrome and Firefox will support some additional formats because they're trying to help you out. Safari is like, no, no, that's that's not a date format. I don't recognize that. So it was just an invalid date issue. And then to fix the bug, then I formatted our list that we had instead to a different date that was then acceptable across all browsers. But that was just, that was an adventure that I hadn't prepared myself for. And now I know a little bit more about browsers and JavaScript. Well, that is uh, interesting. I was not aware of the the tighter restrictions around Safari, although it's interesting the browser list that you talked about. So Chrome, Firefox, and Safari were the three that you listed. Do you have to worry about Edge and or, worst of all, IE? Is that in the consideration as well, the constellation of uh, platforms you need to support? So I have to admit, I really thought you were going to say that you weren't aware that I ran Safari tours, but we'll just glide right past that. Yes, IE is definitely a consideration and one that I believe falls in the same camp as Safari. I don't have a definitive answer as to its strictness for what type of date format it requires. I look specifically at Safari and then Chrome and Firefox behave the same where they both extend their accepted date formats to be more loose in the type of formats they'll accept. So I think IE is in the same bucket, but I didn't actually test it, so I'm not sure. Interesting. I feel like I've run into something with Safari not supporting the native date picker. And so if you say input type equals date on Chrome and on Firefox, you'll get the actual like drop downable date picker. And I think on Safari, it will just fall back to being an input type equals text. I'm not sure about that. That may have been true at one point and it's not true anymore. I feel like there was a polyfill at one point. But broadly, all of this points me towards I just want to push logic back to the server. Because on the server, I know which version of Ruby and Rails I'm running. I know consistently there's one thing. And like the more that I can choke down the possible variance of the way the code's going to execute, the better. Uh, there's obviously the trade-off of immediacy of interaction and clarity of the source of an error. And like if someone types in a date and you can immediately highlight that input in red and give them that feedback more quickly, obviously you need to be in JavaScript to do some of that. But yeah, the trade-offs and having to support all of the different browsers, it's obviously gotten a lot better over the years. Like most folks, as far as I can tell, are starting to just not consider IE because it's so low market share. But there's still those long tail. There are still those applications like, yeah, but for our use case, still got to think about IE forever which is the saddest thing I've ever heard, but <laughs> yeah. Yes, that was one of the things that we talked about. So I, I pushed up a PR that fixes this particular bug and someone very reasonably, as you just had pointed out, was like, what about a server-side validation? And I was like, yes, that would be perfect because if it's logic that is important to our business that we want to make sure that someone is of age, having that browser-side validation is really nice feedback. It's quick feedback for the user, but I definitely want that validated on the server side as well. So there's no way that you're going to bypass it like people were doing once we had this particular bug. Also, testing is a lot easier. So this application is using stimulus. And I'm frankly not sure how to unit test a stimulus controller logic. I ended up writing an integration level test because I wanted to validate that, yes, this feature is working, which I did. But then once we got into the Chrome versus Safari areas, like I don't, I'm not going to write a test for that. 
even though there is some support with Capybara and Selenium where you could choose a browser that is Safari versus Chromium, but I didn't want to go that far. So this was one of those cases where I applied the fix, but I plan on adding the server-side validation and testing that, and frankly, not testing the JavaScript. I don't feel great about it, but it also felt very reasonable in terms of getting the fix out and then adding the more meaningful server-side validation. Yeah, the, the questions around like when and what to test is always difficult. And especially as you start to think about full browser level integration tests, those are so costly in terms of time to run and flakiness and all of that. And for this sort of thing, I probably would do the same as what you're doing, but it is difficult to make that trade off. I am really interested in the question around testing stimulus. And there's there's sort of the collection of stimulus and then there's live view and live wire and all of and inertia, of course, my favorite of these newer approaches to view rendering and more dynamic interactive views. I know Herman, another ThoughtBot developer, actually has a course around testing live view. And from what I've seen, there's actually some really great things around very, very focused, very fast tests that still execute the code of live view interactions. And my sense is that stimulus is somewhat close to that, but I may be conflating technologies. I may be thinking of Turbo or something like that. I, I get them mixed up in the Rails worlds because, for being honest, I haven't actually spent that much time with them. But yeah, I'm super interested in Herman's work there around testing with live view and broadly all of just the great work that I think is happening in that sort of pushing the frontier forward while still keeping a lot of the logic on the server side. Yeah, I'm also excited about those courses because Erman is a fabulous developer and fabulous teacher, which is just an incredible duo of traits to have. And specifically about testing and stimulus, I do want to follow up on that because I would like to know with some confidence that if I have some logic that I want to test because this age verification is a bit complex, like there's more logic to it than I shared. So I would like to be able to unit test it or just completely move it to the back end and then fully test it. But I want that confidence that I can test all the conditionals that we have because right now I don't have that. So as I dive into more stimulus features, I'll report back as to what I learned about testing. How are things going in your world? Things are going well. Uh, I had a fun week where I found some, I'm going to call it medium hanging fruit. wasn't quite low hanging because uh, I've been on the project for a year and I'm just now discovering this thing. But it was actually a pretty quick win that I was really excited about. So we have in the system that I'm working on one very large table that has close to 100 million records and it's been growing very quickly. It's closest to like an event table in this system. So if you think about like Upcase as a relatively reasonable uh, example, this would be like watches, uh, videos or courses or exercises. Anytime a user interacts with the system, we're recording a record of that interaction so that we know and we can show a history of all the things that the user has interacted with and produce stats and all that fun stuff. But as a result, this table is very large, grows very quickly. And we have a bunch of different indexes against it. And so a good amount of my work over the past year, or a reasonable amount of it, has been around this one table, trying to improve performance from a lot of different vantage points. And as I was working on adding a new column to it, I was thinking about the index that I needed to add. And I realized, oh, actually, in a lot of cases, this column is going to be null. Every record will be null to start. And then slowly... Over time, only when users have this foreign key association to some other table will we need that index. So I'm like, oh, partial index, perfect. And then I quickly thought, wait, there are two existing foreign key columns on this table that have indexes against them. And I did a quick check and neither of them were partial. So they were both full indexes against the table, even though many of the records have null values in those two columns. And so our index size was way, way, way bigger than we needed it to be or records that would never be looked up that way. So as an example, thinking about Upcase, imagine that there's like a video ID that would be a foreign key to the video table, an exercise ID that's a reference to the exercise table. Both of those can have an index, but if you watch the video, the video one will be populated, but the exercise one will be null. 
And so for any record in this table, we're going to have nulls in those indexes, and yet we're still producing a full index of them. So the first step was to introduce a new index to mirror the existing ones. Uh, so two new indexes, actually. And they included the where clause where exercise ID is not null or where video ID is not null. And so added those new ones. And then at that point, I don't know what Postgres is doing under the hood, which of the indexes it's going to pick, but it has one available. And then a subsequent migration removed the old indexes. Now, another feature, so the, the migration ended up being slightly complicated because I also didn't want to lock the table and adding an index like this will lock the table. So I added the concurrently keyword to make sure that it wasn't going to lock the table. All of that worked as expected, but then I was still looking at things and trying to actually sum up like how much did this save so all total, these indexes, I took 2.5 gigabytes off of the resting index size, which turns out to be a big deal on Heroku, where RAM constraint is probably the, the primary constraint that we have, and we want to be able to fit our indexes in memory. So taking 2.5 gigs off of a system that has only 35 or so gigabytes of memory total, that was very meaningful. Uh, it also improved write throughput. So we got a 10% improvement on the main like upload of this data from the client side which is always a nice thing to have. So we're writing to fewer indexes when there are null values. So cool. There's a little bit of a savings there. Slightly better read as well. Not much. The indexes are slightly smaller, so I think it's a little bit easier to read, but it's not as meaningful as the right side where we're just now doing no work where we used to have to do work. That's awesome. I'm curious, how did you measure those improvements? So like that write improvement and read improvement, how did you deduce those were the improvements? For the... Index size, I was using, uh, there are some Postgres functions, PG table size, PG index size, et cetera. So I did those to get the actual raw numbers before and after. I also tested this on staging, and it was interesting. Staging had very different behavior. Staging had much smaller initial indexes. Uh, and the reason for that is staging was running from a backup of production. But when Postgres does a backup, it doesn't back up the indexes because in theory, they're a cache. They can be reinflated after the fact. And so when you copy a backup from one environment to another, or generally in Postgres, as far as I understand it, you are only sending over the data. And then there's a record that there is an index. And so as it's loading the data in, Postgres is also going to inflate those indexes. We'll follow up on that because there's more there. But I found that really interesting. I was like, wait, staging started with way smaller indexes to begin with. What's going on here? But yeah, so there's some Postgres functions you can just query for those values. That told me the size. And then we're using Scout for application performance monitoring. And Scout had metrics I was able to compare to the previous week and see what those numbers looked like for that one endpoint. I had no idea that Postgres did that. That's fascinating that, yes, yeah, you're copying over the data. And I like how you use the term is going to inflate the index over time. That's really interesting. I think I was tangentially aware of it, but this interaction really um, forced me to think about it. Because uh, it was this weird mystery where I tested it on staging and I was like, oh, that's slightly better. And then I reran it on production. And on production, it was vastly better because the existing index was so much larger than what I was seeing on staging. So I was like, what's going on there? And a little bit of research led to that little piece of data that Postgres will not actually save the indexes in the backups. Totally makes sense now that I think about it. But yeah, it wasn't something that I had immediately available. But that did point to the fact that the indexes on production are incorrect for lack of a better term or they're my sense was that they're like they need to be defragged or rebalanced or something to that effect so they i don't think they were wrong 
but Postgres will normally do auto vacuuming at random intervals as rows are deleted or data is updated. Postgres will also need to remanage the indexes. And some of that happens when the data is changed. Some of it, I'm guessing they sort of orphan rows in the index. Uh, I'm talking way past my actual knowledge here, but something's going on there that ideally that index should be the same size as if you were to recreate it, but that was not what I was seeing. So for one final cleanup pass, I was able to re-index those indexes. So there is a re-index command, re-index index or re-index table, uh, where if you do the table one, it'll do all of the indexes against the table. And that's basically telling Postgres, hey, try again, just burn it down. Well, not burn it down, but create a new version of the index. And then I assume they swap it into place with like an atomic move type operation so that nothing goes bad, but also use the concurrently keyword on this to make sure that I wouldn't take the system down. But doing that ended up compacting the indexes down a good bit. So again, fitting more in memory and all of those niceties. Yeah, I didn't know about the ability to re-index. So if you notice that something is just off, you can tell Postgres to, I like how you said, try again. And yes, you answered the question I was just about to ask as to whether that was a safe maneuver or not. So I appreciate you adding that bit about using the concurrent algorithm to make sure that we are doing that in safe mode. I don't know what it would do if I didn't do the concurrently. Like, would it just start by dropping the index and then rebuild it? But I know in the concurrent case, because I accidentally borked it halfway through and had to control C, they create a secondary index with like underscore new suffixed onto the name. And then at the end, once that new index is fully populated, then they replace the old one, sort of like rename, swap in, delete the underscore new version. So they're doing that under the hood, at least when you're doing it concurrently. I don't actually know what the normal version is, but I want it to be as safe as possible and not break production in any way. So I just threw concurrently onto everything. Create table concurrently. Drop data concurrently. No, don't drop data. But just, yeah, that's my new <laughs> keyword everywhere. Uh, select a star concurrently. <laughs> it doesn't apply in a lot of those cases, just to be clear. <laughs> you're the Oprah of database migrations. If you get a concurrent, you get a concurrent. <laughs> That's the kindest thing anyone has ever said about me. So yeah, moving on. That was, like I said, a lot of fun. It It's hard to capture all of the details here, but it was actually a relatively quick thing. I learned a couple of fun things under the hood, but like Postgres just has a number of commands. There was a little bit of sequencing the migrations, which that's always a little bit um, annoying. But I wish there were a like re-index concurrently while changing the definition of the index. If I could have done that as a singular migration, that would have been great, but I don't believe Postgres has that. So I had to do the create new index, delete old index, use the new instead of the old, and then I had to do the re-index concurrently for the other, just sort of clean up. But overall, relatively straightforward and reasonable wins, both in terms of like end user experience and in terms of our space usage within the database server, which sort of just buys us time before we need to upgrade again or think about more complex solutions to how do we manage the data. So that's always nice. You know, just ideally, we don't have to think about this for a little bit longer as a result of being able to make this change. Yeah, anytime you can delay that type of we need to purchase more infrastructure is always a nice win and improve the user experience. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Cha-cha-cha. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring that's designed to help developers like us quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities. So this includes N plus one queries, slow database queries, and performance bloat. 
Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy, knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. I mean, that's pretty great. I definitely want to resolve issues before my customers see them. So give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial by visiting and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an extra bonus for Bike Shed listeners, because y'all are special and you deserve that little extra, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So head on over and learn more at scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. Ring, ring. So related to Postgres, in no way, we have two listener questions that I'm very excited for us to talk about. And for the first one, I decided to start with the more challenging technical listener question that we have received from Derek Pryor, who is the previous co-host of The Bike Shed. And Derek submitted the question, what percentage of the world's population has ever ridden a horse? And I am very excited to talk about this because I would love to know what your guess is. 15%. No way. (laughs) Derek Pryor coming in with a hard-hitting question. I don't know. I'm kind of, if we're being honest, I'm I'm talking off the top of my head. I meant to actually think about this a bunch. So I'm (laughs) interested. So you said no way, but I'm really intrigued. Is it no way, obviously way more than that, or no way, obviously way fewer than that? I think it's way more. Although we're missing some data for this question. Like we don't know what year we're talking about. Like, are we talking about current age? Are we talking like 1800, 1900s, like where it was more common to have a horse? It is worldwide. Yeah. The world's population is in the question. So at least we have that bit. It's not just to like one restricted geographical location, but I definitely think it's more. You're probably right. Although I love, <laughs> I love the way you're framing it back is this question, uh, maybe it's actually not that serious of a question. Uh, although you did a wonderful job framing it. But there is, I think, something interesting to questions like this is sort of back of the envelope math. And so you started to ask some really good constraint questions of like, wait, 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 you can't just ask a question like that and not give me any like, are we talking about now living ever lived? Like, what are we going for? Is it just here? Is it everywhere in the world? And so that game of given a sort of abstract statement, how do you constrain that back down to a solvable problem? Because the fully unspecified version of that question is probably unanswerable. But then you started to ask useful questions. And there's a parallel to our work there that I'm maybe force-fitting, but I think is real. So I'm curious, we will apply this question to our little group. Have you ever ridden a horse? I have not ridden a horse. Interesting. I'm fascinated by that. No, like pony rides, nothing? (laughs) None that I recall. I don't remember (laughs) riding a horse. It's a weird different way I'm going to frame my answer. <laughs> okay, that's that's fair. Because then, yeah, I'm thinking through people that I know um, that have ridden a horse. But I'm just thinking, yeah, of all the pony rides, people who have gone on that one horse back tour because someone dragged them along, I'm going to guess that we're probably more at least in like the 50%. Although 50%. I would go bold and I'm going to guess like 70% of people have ridden a horse. I now feel embarrassed by my answer of 15%, but uh, you could I, be I, think, right. I think you're over. With your 70% answer, I think you're over. Your 50%, Probably. maybe. Although you threw ponies in there, and I would, again, in constraints, do ponies count? I'm thinking a full-grown horse. That's that's the question in my mind, but now we would need to to specify that. But okay, so we're on record. I said 15. I'm probably completely ridiculous here. You said, I'm going to put you at 70 so that we have a ridiculous range around it. <laughs> there is a variant of this. So like this is almost like a mini game of like, what what would you guess for this thing? But I played a version of this sort of game with friends where you need three or more people. So let's pretend it's you, me, and Tom, our wonderful producer. And we have a question like, what percentage of the world's population has ridden a horse? So the way you play the game is, we'll call this game Tom Thinks. 
So Tom needs to think of his answer to this question. But you and I need to think of our best guess as to what Tom's answer is going to be. And so there's a whole extra level that gets played in there. So like, not just how do I think about the question, but how does this other person think about the question? What systematic biases might they have? In the past, there was a round that we played with how many three-point shots has Steph Curry attempted in his life? And that was a really interesting one. And the group had very varied levels of basketball knowledge. And that led to some humorous discussions after the fact. But that was inherent to... As you're thinking about it, it's not just what's the correct answer, but it's what will this person think? What do they know about how many times a person shoots a basketball? I don't know anything about basketball, so I was one of the people with some nonsense. Although my answer was reasonable, I think. But I love the type of games that focus on the do you know your audience versus do you know the correct answer? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, I probably don't care about the real answer, but it's more fun to debate and discuss and guess what the other person is going to guess. So that sounds like a fun game. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick with my 70. I agree. I'm probably over, but I'm going to remain staunch in my belief. I feel like this is just a little window into your optimism. You're like, I hope everyone's ridden a horse. <laughs> I'd be sad for the people that haven't ridden a horse. I can tell you're sad for me right now. Not everybody likes horses. I get it. No, um, horses are great. I just haven't ridden one. I guess I just I am surprised because I always think of like all those trips and where like someone like drags somebody along on like, hey, we should do a horseback riding tour like on the beach or through the mountains or something like that. And I always think about but I do feel like those have dwindled. So maybe I'm just thinking back to my youth and like those were more popular. (laughs) And that is less of a thing now, though. Who knows? But yeah, shifting on to the slightly less serious and less technical question. This one comes in to us from Sasha Cuerda on Twitter, and Sasha asks, I know you all love talking about GraphQL. I imagine that's a little more specific to me than you, Steph, but that's fine. Not sure if either of you has experience migrating an existing API to GraphQL, but if so, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts on the relationship between database tables slash models and types you expose in the graph. Do you stick with a one-to-one-ish mapping, or do you treat nodes, nodes in the GraphQL sense, as ways of defining, quote, aggregates? I've heard Chris Toomey talk about the graph as a way of representing what can be known, but wondering what that means in terms of hiding information versus exposing it. So some of this is specific to things I've said, so I'll definitely answer those, but interested in your hot take in response to that question. So my hot take is this is something that I haven't done before where I've migrated an existing API over to GraphQL. I also still haven't worked with GraphQL. I mean, I feel like I've worked with GraphQL given the number of delightful conversations that we've had about it, but I haven't really worked with it on a project. In regards to the broader discussion of whether we want to just hide everything that we have available in our database, From our previous conversations, one of the benefits of GraphQL is the fact that we get to define that interface of what API consumers are going to be able to request and work with. So I'm going to go with, no, we don't want to expose everything that we do want to provide a very purposeful interface for people to query against. But given that I haven't really worked in this space, I'm interested in hearing your hot take as well. Largely, that would be the core of my take is introducing a GraphQL API is a really great time to purposefully craft the definition of the data available to your system and how you can access it. It's definitely not something where I just want to expose out all of the database tables. But even setting GraphQL aside, I feel that basically about everything, like the database is a persistence layer. It's a very low level thing. When I'm working with active record, even just creating active record models, I do my best to not do significant querying, say, in a controller. I will tend to either introduce scopes or class methods on the models to sort of encapsulate what the data access might look like and produce almost a mini API to the data layer, or introduce query objects, which are just 
another object but happen to have that same sort of thing where it's like here's the question that you can ask of the data in our system don't just reach in and grab anything you want and i like to be more purposeful even in just an active record context so that's you know rendering to erb views or anything like that when going to an api i feel that all the more strongly because that api is going to be coupled to by external systems typically like a, a client-side react app or something like that and those are harder to change over time and so i want to be all the more purposeful in the structure of the data that I'm exposing to it and the way that I'm exposing it. That said, one of the really nice things about GraphQL in contrast to REST APIs is you get the opportunity to have a slightly bigger API surface if you want it. For instance, if you have a join table, you can expose that join information explicitly or you can also bypass it. So as an example, within ThoughtBot, we had a database of all the people within the company and we built a GraphQL API because we thought it would be a fun way to sort of explore that technology. And one of the things that was true is we had people and then skills or like a, a topic. So a person may have an association to React, but there were different considerations on that sort of affinity and skill level and things like that in that relationship so there was a join table between people and skills one thing that you could do is expose that directly so that you can query through that ability middle table that join table and get the fully expressive information but you can also expose it as people to skills directly and so you can flatten out that middle layer and you can give both in a graphql api because you can sort of do anything you want and giving that flexibility to the client so that it can query the way that is natural for it is really interesting. But part of that is very much taking the time to only expose what you need, sort of have the client pull is my preference there, define like what are the questions that the client needs to ask of the system that we have and how do we construct an API that gives that information without just directly exposing the database tables. I really like that example of how you can flatten out the relationship to give the consumer something that's more meaningful versus having them traverse what the associations may actually look like. As someone who's a bit more of an outsider to GraphQL, I can see how there are competing priorities where you're in favor of GraphQL because you're very excited about the idea of I can expose all the fields and I'm not going to have to continue to update this API endpoint and then publish new versions of this API because clients can just ask for whatever they need because I can expose more to them and then they can request exactly just what they need for their application. But then on the other side, we're advocating for the idea that once you make it public, it's hard to take it back. So then there is still that very purposeful process, just like you'd mentioned with our models as well, where we want to make sure that if we put it into the public space, that we want to maintain that going forward. So I can see how someone be like, why can't I just do all of it? Isn't that like the benefit, the beauty of GraphQL? Yeah, I think you very astutely highlighted one of the tensions there. Uh, you have this ability to just expose anything you want and expose virtual fields or computed fields or things like that, but cautioning against going too big. So I think I have to reach for the classic adage of uh, the bike shed of it depends. There are certain cases of the, like, I don't want to expose every field on a database table. That's a thing that Active Record naturally does that I actually don't love about it. I would prefer a more purposeful annotation to say like, here's my model. It maps to this database table. Make these attributes publicly accessible, part of the public API of the model. I understand why that is not the case, and it might be annoying to have to deal with that, but it's that sort of mindset. I would prefer more in the private API and expose into the public API as makes sense, and that's just within the context of Ruby objects. The same is true of an API, but I like that GraphQL gives you the flexibility to do those sort of incremental additions without having that cost hit every client. Yeah, that's a nice way to think about it, that you can expose more, but not all clients have to then download that increased payload. They can still request just what they want. 
there's a particular example that I've seen in the GitHub GraphQL API that I really love, which is they thread permissions logic through the API. So through the GraphQL API. So for instance, if you're looking at a repository, if you're looking at the REST API, you're just getting the information about the repository. And then you may have to do a separate permissions check, say like for the given user, what are their scopes against this repository? But with the GraphQL API, you can actually query for fields like viewer can edit, viewer can destroy. And those are Boolean attributes on the GraphQL type for that repository. So it knows the GraphQL API knows who you are logged in as and can now directly expose that information of like, can this user destroy this thing? And therefore, should we make the button disabled or enabled, that sort of thing? So it allows for exposing a whole bunch of those sort of things without, again, that cost being applied to every client. That computation only happens when a client specifically asks for one of those fields. But as a result, they can expose as many of them as they want, because there's all these different variants of given org permissions and things like that. And again, that's another, I used this phrase earlier, but it's one of my favorite themes of pushing logic back to the server. GraphQL inherently makes that easier to do. With a REST API, you tend to just give the data to the client and say, have fun, figure out the logic on your own. Here's a bunch of permissions, here's a bunch of user data, here's the repos, mix it together and, and go for it. Whereas with GraphQL, you end up being able to craft more specific questions via the API. And I really like that about it. But it does have that tension of, well, don't throw everything in the API, though. Yes, that is a, a difficult. It depends. You'll know it when you see it. Well, with the REST API, there's this interesting dynamic of it's like we get one conversation. Like you get to ask me for something and I can't limit my response to just that one thing because you're probably going to need other things too. So I just have to send you everything versus in the GraphQL world, you get to tell me, hey, Stephanie, I would like these three things, please. And then I can send just those back to you. I think that ties in nicely with what Sasha is asking regarding do we want to hide information versus exposing it. And with the REST API, you feel obligated to share more because you just get that one-time opportunity to share all of that information and you don't know what each bespoke client is going to need. So with GraphQL, you're not hiding it, but you are giving others the option to opt into it. I think that's actually a slightly different thing there. So there's the idea of like, you only get what you need, but it's still available in the API. I think Sasha's question is about, do you want to expose all of the database tables via the API? And I think we answered that earlier with fundamentally in a GraphQL context or otherwise, we do not just want to reflect out the database and expose it all to the world. But GraphQL allows us to have slightly more nuanced conversations with the client. And that's really useful. Did we talk about some of the additional reasons that we want to avoid exposing everything in our database? I know we touched on the fact that once you make it public, it's hard to change. Although GraphQL does make it easier because then we can track to see who's requesting what. So then GraphQL does make it easier for us to understand what we can change and who's depending on it. But I'm curious, what are some of the other reasons in your mind that we don't want to expose everything in our database? I think we touched on it, but I think you're right to sort of push on that, especially in the context of GraphQL, because I think it does make this better. Uh, but fundamentally, this this feels like one of those heuristics that I have found to be more and more true over time is expose as little as you possibly can. And so even in the case of GraphQL and being able to know which fields are being requested and, and things of that nature, there still are clients out in the world if they end up using a public API. Now they're coupled to that. And if we remove it, it's a breaking change for them. And so we want to avoid that. We also can't guarantee that we'll be able to migrate them. So for instance, GitHub has a public GraphQL API that there are tons and tons of different clients out there in the world, and they don't have a great mechanism for communicating to those users, hey, stop it. Now, like they, There are deprecations. It's a formal part of GraphQL, but people have to look at it and care. And that can be difficult. So 
even though there is a better mechanism inherently like with rest it's very opaque you don't know which of the fields anyone is using but even with graphql i would still be inclined to be very purposeful in what i'm exposing and also to keep that minimal surface area to be somewhat purposeful in crafting it so like, what's the story of our application? Because the database is, a again, a very low level, like that is a persistence layer, but it has some, there are shapes of data that exist there that exist because that's the way the database wants to think about it. But as we get up into application and even more into like product domain, I want to think about things slightly differently. There's always some level of transformation in how I want to talk about product things and what it looks like in the database and a goal is always to minimize that delta but it's always going to exist and so i don't want to expose those inconsistencies subtle as they may be out to more product centric like the ui is the most product centric thing in our app stack in my mind so i don't want them to be mired in the complexities of the storage layer i got wordy in that answer but hopefully that was useful (laughs) yeah that was super useful That makes a lot of sense to me too. And I like the approach that you took and where we are trying to make this as useful and helpful to people versus having them to understand the internal workings of our application and how we have chosen to store the data. Instead, we want to take that opportunity to then translate the data into something that's meaningful for the users. And in this case, the clients that are consuming the API. But with that, Sasha, thank you so much for writing in. And thank you, everyone else who uh, writes in, even Derek Pryor. We appreciate your wonderful questions. But again, please continue sending us in these questions. Twitter, through our website, there are many different ways to get in touch with us. But we really love getting these questions. And hopefully that was useful for you, Sasha. But with that, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review on iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or drop us an email at host at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.